In high school, Richard Garriott coded somewhere along the lines of 28 fantasy games as part of self-guided curriculum for the school. The last of these projects, 28B, would become his first published game, Akalabath World of Doom. Pieces of Akalabath would become the basis for one of the granddaddies of the computer role-playing genre, Ultima 1, and start the Ultima series that would last for years and sell millions of copies. Today we're going to be taking a look back at this beginning to the Ultima series and tell you the story about how it came to be and what it came to mean to millions of people. So stick around and join us for today's role-playing trip down memory card lane. afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 94th episode of our video game nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we're looking back at Ultima, the first Age of Darkness, released for the Apple II in June of 1981. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who has something in common with the main character of today's game, in that he always introduces himself as the stranger everywhere he goes. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's it like being a stranger to everyone? Well, Dave... You know that old adage, don't talk to strangers? Yes. Well, that's kind of why I like it. I don't have to talk to anyone. Oh. But also, a lot of people talk to strangers. It's kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy, actually. People, well, I say people are too trusting, but I'm probably one of those people, too. So, Indubitably, Dave. Don't talk to strangers, kids. For real. What are you playing, Rob? Well, Dave... It's Rocket been League. a little bit of Rocket League, a lot of bit of RuneScape, a little bit of Bannerlord, and I believe that's it for the past week. How about yourself? Rocket League? I took the time with one of our mutuals to get uh, a arcade emulator working in multiplayer. So we could try some things that we can't actually find in arcades anymore. And I played some Tetris continuation of, I think, was it last week's episode? I really like the new version of Tetris. It's a really good thing to just sit down and, and get lost in. It's fantastic, actually. I played some of a game called Tunic. And I played some Cyberpunk... 2077 and i think that'll sum up what i've played this week i think sounds about right sounds like a loaded game week but fun yeah. nonetheless yeah it's all right rob have you ever stumbled across a ultima game any of the ultima games in the series before honestly dave i cannot say that i have uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I really don't think they're as prominent anymore, so that's really not any surprise. And 
if I'm thinking about the timeline off the top of my head, I could very easily just go and look, but I, I haven't. I also think that um, it really kind of fell out of favor probably about when you started to get really into gaming. So I'm, I'm not entirely surprised by that. You ever heard of its creator, Richard Garriott, before? Mm, does not sound familiar by name, but no. who knows? I also just don't know a lot of names. Very true. That is definitely not your thing. I guess this whole thing's gonna be gonna be a thing for you. So yeah. So our tale today begins with Richard Garriott. And Richard Garriott should be a regular patriot. He was born on July fourth, nineteen sixty one, after all. But he was born in Cambridge, England. To Helen Mary Garriott and Owen Garriott. This is important because Owen Garriott was one of NASA's first scientist astronauts in space. Both of Richard's parents are American, but because he was born in England, he claims dual citizenship for both the United States and the United Kingdom. Is that important to today's story? No, but I like that as a fact. He grew up on Nassau Bay, Texas, real close to the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center. And his first real exposure to computers was roughly in 1975 during his freshman year of high school. He was in the midst of a computer class. Uh, back then, they taught one semester of basic programming, and he knew that he wanted more. So he convinced the school to let him create a self-directed course in programming. Now, Richard was a fan of the things that nerds at that time were a fan of Lord of the Rings, Dungeons and Dragons. And this is reflected in his programming. In a later interview, he estimated that through his self-directed learning, he programmed roughly about 28 fantasy computer games during high school. Now these early games were created on teletype terminals. Now we've covered teletype terminals really briefly Recently, actually, when we talked about King Quest and Sierra Online, because um, because that story got to start in a teletype terminal. But I don't think I ever really went into a teletype. So teletype terminals, they don't have displays. They Their code gets stored on paper tape spools. So basically, you would type a line into the teletype terminal and it would print the response on paper. So instead of the way we think of interacting with a computer, teletype terminals were basically printouts. And that's how you played the game. It was a format that worked really well with these early games that were basically all text, right? Right. So during his junior year of high school, Richard began to work on a project that was initially just called D&D for Dungeons and Dragons with the help of his friends and basically his friends and his, you know, D and D partners were playtesters of his game. In the summer of 1979, he began working at a computer store. I believe it was called computer lands, really creative. And here he encountered an Apple computer for the first time. Now, after working on teletype terminals up until this point, he was kind of in awe of a computer that had a video monitor and it had color graphics. You know, the early ones were monochrome, but that was color nonetheless. And so he began to change the projects he was working on to include a view for the player, right? 
So he works on this project, and later that year, he demoed D&D version... Tw- it's, it's, it was known as D&D version 28B, except he had a name for it now, which was Akalabeth World of Doom. And so he previewed this game to his manager at the store, and his manager loved it, just loved the game, suggested that he sell it at the store. So Richard spent $200 in 1980 uh, and bought all these packaging materials. He asked his mother to draw a cover for the game. He created an instruction booklet for the game. They put it all together in a Ziploc bag. Does that sound familiar, Rob? Mm, a little bit. I feel like a lot of games that we've talked about in this very early time, King's Quest, the early games in King's Quest, like the Haunted House game, whose name is escaping me right now, they packaged that early game in Ziploc bags. It was just kind of the way... Shoot, I think we talked about the early flight sims being packaged in Ziploc bags. The beginning of the computer gaming industry is all Ziploc bags, ladies and gentlemen. That's what I'm talking about. So That it is, Dave. (laughs) So they publish this game, they package it in Ziploc bags, and they begin selling it at Computerland here in Texas. Now, one of these copies makes its way to the California Pacific Computer Company, who subsequently reached out to Richard Garriott to publish a game, the game, the project. So he's flown out to California. He cuts a deal with the company. It's something like he makes $5 on every copy of the game, which is great money in the 80s. And they published this title, uh, you know, The World of Doom in 1980. So according to Richard Garriott, the company sells about 300,000 co- or 300,000, that'd be amazing for today's numbers, 30,000 right. copies. Though admittedly, there's been some research done after that. People that have looked at the sales numbers that were published in like, you know, computer, you know, industry magazines and everything. And we all think that it was closer to 10,000 10, copies is what he sold. But with that being said, what we can all agree on is that he did make $150,000 off of this first game, which is a lot of money for then. Not it's no it's not shabby now, but it was a lot of money for then. So, this game, Akalabeth, is now recognized as the first commercially published role-playing video game. Its graphics, it had a dungeon crawling mechanic. So these together, the graphics and the mechanics were really advanced for the time. And it made this game very popular because it was something unlike anyone had ever seen at the time. Though this is part of the history, right? Richard Garriott and what he did ahead of time. I Beth is also important to the topic of today's episode Ultima because large portions of this game were used as the subroutines for the dungeon sections of his next project, which was Ultima. So he began working on Ultima during his freshman year at the University of Texas with the help of a friend, Ken Arnold, and together they finished it in roughly less than a year. Now, Ken Arnold really uh, stuck around for a little bit. He contributed music to later versions. I think Ultima 3, Ultima 4, somewhere in there, he's got some music credits on it, but he hasn't really done anything else other than that. Um, But he was here in the beginning, and that's an important part. Initially, Richard Garriott wanted to call the game Ultimatum, but he came to learn that the name Ultimatum was already in use by a board game company, so he shortened it to Ultima. 
which admittedly, in hindsight, since Ultima is an ultimatum, which you give someone as like the final, like this is my final offer type, right? Right. There's a lot of Ultima games. So admittedly, in hindsight, he said, I probably may not, maybe not have used that name. Realistically, when he created it, he never thought there would ever be a second game in the series. He only ever did it with, with the first game. So they code Ultima. It's written in AppleSoft Basic. It's finished in 1981. Uh, it is also known to be the first role-playing game to use what we call tile graphics to create the, the world. Uh, tile graphics are still used to this day, but before then, it was unheard of. So they used tile graphics programmed in assembly code. They wrote the game in AppleSoft Basic. They passed it off to the Computer Pacific Computer Company and um, California Pacific Computer Company who published it for the Apple II in 1981. So, um, the, you know, the first Ultima is quick, it's easy, there's really not much to it, and it gets released to the world. Now, Ultima itself as a video game is kind of interesting. The story of Ultima revolves around an evil wizard and his desire to rule over the ki- this kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. Now, a thousand years earlier, the wizard basically creates a gem of immortality and then releases all sorts of unspeakable horrors on a land. But because he's immortal, there's no way for anyone to put an end to the... To the you can keep doing the monsters, but if you never get rid of the guy creating them, you're never going to stop, you know? So what happens is that the world's actual ruler, who was called Lord British, searches for someone who can stop the wizard. Now, Lord British is legitimately a a, a character. It was the name given to Richard Garriott by his role-playing buddies for his character because he was dual American and British. So he he is Lord British. And in later games, such as uh, Ultima would eventually progress into an MMORPG, um lord british became his persona when he for his online you know as an online character as well so um he put he put a little bit of himself into the game that's awesome so lord british says i need someone who can help me stop the wizard and the person that answers the call is you also known as the stranger so we're back to you rob how do you feel strange ah yes exactly some stranger things you might say Ah, lame. (laughs) (laughs) So you come to find out that the only way to defeat this evil wizard is to travel back in time and kill him before he creates the gem. So most of this game is actually spent searching for a time machine and a way to use it. Kind of weird for a fantasy game, you know? A little bit, yeah. I mean, you don't typically see sci-fi technology put into a fantasy game. So there's four realms in this game. Each lord that presides over a realm holds one gem. And when all four gems are put together, that's how you activate the time machine. So in proper RPG format, you go to a realm, you ask the lord for a gem. He says, I'm not giving it to you till you do something for me. You go do these quests for the lord, you get the gem, so on and so forth. In order to find the time, here's an even more interesting concept. So in order to find the time machine to begin with, you have to purchase a space shuttle. 
and you become a space ace by shooting down a bunch of spaceships. Once you become a space ace, there is a princess in the game who finally decides to give you the time of day, and she's the one who can tell you where the time machine is. Okay. Okay? All right? I know, right? So wizards and spells and gems of immortality, and here's a time machine, and uh, (laughs) you actually go, you actually travel the, um, you travel the map with a land cruiser, and you can also find phasers and lightsabers in the game. So uh, it it literally feels like he took every like nerdy thing about the 70s and early like late 70s and said, I'm going to put them all together. You know, I mean, it worked. It It did actually work. Yes, it did actually work. So you find the time machine, put the gems in the time machine together travel back in time destroy the gem kill the wizard go back to your own time and reap the rewards now richard garriott was actually later questioned on where the hell the space part comes from the time machine and people could you know people could kind of give some things for that but most people think that the space aspect comes straight out of left field And Richard Garriott was later quoted as saying that he really just wanted to fill up every available space there was at the disc with as many different things as he could possibly think of. Wow. That's incredible. I know, right? So realistically, Ultima is a pretty straightforward role-playing game. You have, like I said, an overworld map. It was tile-based. You got around by foot or land cruiser. You know, you view it from, from above. And when you go into a dungeon, dungeons come at you in a first-person view, which was unique at the time. You know, when most were text-based, you had a first-person. It was a wireframe view, but it was first-person nonetheless. Um, you start out with all these stat points to distribute into 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 certain statistics, like you can up your strength, your agility, your charisma, your intelligence. Really, really straightforward uh, role-playing game. You know, you fight enemies, you gain experience points, you level up, you can improve your stats, and so on and so forth. There's stores you can visit, you know, the, the, the monsters and the beast drop coins, you can buy stuff with it. Um, you could pretty much do anything. What's really special about Ultima, other than kind of what we talked about, is that, first and foremost, it was the first open-world computer game. You had, an, you had an overworld map, and you were free to go and do whatever you wanted. Now, you could wander into sections where you were going to get your butt kicked immediately, but you were free to do whatever you wanted. Along with Akalabeth, it's considered, specifically Ultima, is considered the first definitive commercial computer RPG, and it became the golden standard for pretty much the role-playing computer role-playing genre at the time so um it it holds a place um now from there it has one heck of a legacy and we're going to talk about that momentarily but before we do that rob i think it'd be fitting for you to give us a brief primer on what people thought of ultima itself at the time so i'm gonna pass it away to you all right dave well with that we're going to start off with some critic reviews, starting with Softline, who stated in 1981 that Ultima seems to be the best available Apple II role-playing game. The magazine called the graphics impressive 
and concluded that it retails for thirty nine ninety five and is well worth the price. That would be impressive price for today's games. Uh, yeah, that it would. It absolutely would. <laughs> Deirdre Almaloy reviewed the game for Computer Gaming World and stated that Ultima is one of the best computer fantasy role-playing games to date. Okay. Computer Gaming World in 1991 and 1993 called the game truly epic in scope, stating that it was among the first to have outdoor settings and NPC conversations. While noting the unbalanced combat system, the magazine concluded that Ultima was a classic not to be missed. So favorable. Critics looked at it favorable. What about users? Did they ha- did they share the same view on the game? Well, let's go ahead and see what Salim Farhad on Moby Games has to say. So Salim calls Ultima a great start to a great series. They write that the game itself, like many games from the 80s, required a lot of imagination from the player. It isn't particularly long or demanding on the player, especially if they know how to raise their statistics and get the most powerful weapons in the game, all of which can be done almost at the beginning, allowing for a super-powered player to plow through the enemies. Performing quests for the kings in the game come in hopes of getting the important items to finish the game can range from the fairly silly to the mundane, and doesn't do much in terms of advancing the plot, but it does allow for some excuse to explore the dungeons in the world, which would otherwise be fairly unnecessary. There is something else about this game that sets it apart from most other RPG series, say perhaps the Might and Magic series, was its combination of pure sci-fi and fantasy. Very true. Very true. While the world appears to be your standard fantasy setting, there are actually space shuttles and flying cars available. And the most powerful weapons in the game are blasters and phaser pistols. Also, there's a part of the game that involves you going into outer space to shoot down TIE fighters from Star Wars. Though, later Retcon made it clear they're actually Kilrathi from the Wing Commander series. You need to do this because a princess tells you she won't help you unless you're a space ace. (laughs) Just imagine if Ultima was a movie. And up to that point, it'd been a generic fantasy movie. Until someone says that you need to suit up, fly a space fighter, and blow up Star Destroyers. The sheer awesomeness of that would explode the heads of anyone in the audience. The best part of it is, there's no segue between the fantasy and sci-fi. They just exist side to side, as if there's nothing wrong with or off that. This fact does set Ultima apart from any other game even today, which you'd think had been surpassed by now, but hasn't, save for the Might and Magic series. They finish up by saying that Ultima gets four out of five stars i'm actually gonna write that movie now we're gonna write a generic fantasy movie and halfway through everyone's just gonna suit up get in the space shuttle and go to space it's actually a really good point there aren't a lot of 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 movies that blend the two together can you imagine like harry potter in space see I got a movie idea, but uh, we'll talk after because we don't want this getting out yet. Oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Don't you steal our ideas, folks. Yep. Not our ideas, but don't reuse old ideas. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Like we're going to. (laughs) All right, Dave. Well, next up, we have Veteran Moby Games, who calls Ultima a confusing journey through space and time. 
They wrote that my game rather st- started rather awkwardly and left me rather confused for the duration of the game. I thought the game would be a fantasy game, but the first thing my dwarven fighter did was steal from Lord British Treasury, which made him the proud owner of a blaster rifle, a light sword, and a vacuum suit. I then started grinding loot until I could buy an air car and fulfilled my Luke Skywalker fantasies. Later came the space shuttle and fighting sequences with TIE fighters, which added to the confusion. Mm-hmm. All in all, Ultima is quite fun to play, but don't expect anything from it story-wise. Don't expect any challenge either. The game is ridiculously easy. Even the final boss is dead before you know it. Just make sure you visited all the signposts and did your share of grinding for all the sci-fi gear. Only play it if you're really interested in seeing the roots of this series. Or wonder what it would be like if Dungeons and Dragons, Lord of the Rings, and Star Wars somehow collided to form some kind of geek super world. Yeah. Vetter ultimately gave Ultima 3 out of 5 stars. That's going to be the name of the new game. Geek Super World. There you go. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. Well, Dave, last up, we have Pix on Moby Game, who says that Ultima creaks with age, but it's still fun enough for a couple of hours. They write that this was Richard Garriott's first attempt at a commercial game and the start of the epic series of Ultima games. The game incorporates a slightly enhanced version of the Akalabeth 3D Dungeons, which allegedly the world's first tile graphics to create the outside world and towns. The world is quite a decent size for such an old game, with four lands to explore. Each land has several towns and a couple of castles. The kings in each castle give you quests to either kill a creature a la Akalabeth or to find a particular signpost on the map. This means you usually know what you're trying to achieve throughout the game. The game, however, isn't in a typical fantasy setting, and the technology gets more advanced as you progress. Later in the game, there's a space combat section where you get to shoot down little TIE fighters, which adds a bit of variety. Although I'm not sure all the technology and space section fit into a fantasy RPG, it does give it an epic feel. Like most RPGs of the time, you spend most of the game raising stats and money. Raising your experience points fighting doesn't raise your stats, however. Instead, when you visit signposts on a map, your experience in a particular area is raised. You have to visit a different signpost and come back to raise the same stat again. This means you just travel back and forth between pairs of posts and raise your stats in no time. This is a bit strange and... Not my idea of role-playing. There is no plot to the game, and the towns are little more than a series of shops. There's no one to talk to in these towns beyond the storekeepers. The final battle with Mundane is a bit of an anti-climax. It takes place on a mostly black screen, and ends up with you chasing Mundane all over the screen, until he stops moving long enough for you to hit him. Ultimately... Picks ended up giving this game a three out of five stars. You know, I don't really know if it's how'd you say it the first time? Akalabeth? Akalabeth? Akalabeth or Akalabeth? 
I, I, I'm butcher. I should know. He took the name from actually the Lord of the Rings. It's one of the stories in the Silmarillion. It's the fourth story. It's the fourth part of the Silmarillion. It's called the Downfall of Numenor. Um, and I really don't know. I should. I should. I. I you know. Whatever. I really but, couldn't tell you, Dave, because that was all a lot of mumble jumble. I've. I. I admittedly, I've never read the books. That's okay. Summerillion is an, another book in the Lord of the Rings series. That's like a chapter. No, 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 no. It's its own book. It's it's the lore. It's like one of the history books. It's stories that took place outside of the historically ah. in the same world as what you know as the Lord of the Rings. So, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Um, and that's where he got the name from. It has nothing to do with said story. The game has nothing to do with the story, but but he took the name from it. So. So Ultima is a video game series as a series. You know, the game itself is special because it's an open world RPG and it's one of the first commercial successes in the computer role playing genre. Um, And it laid the groundwork for Ultima as a video game series, which was very significant to video game history. It is one of what we consider to be the grand one of the granddaddies to the actual computer role playing genre. It, there are two other series that kind of make that make, make up that holy trifecta. I guess you could say they are wizardry and might and magic, which that one reviewer kept talking about over and over and over. Um, we're actually going to cover wizardry in September uh, if you'd like to learn all about it, if you don't know anything about it, you're going to get a chance to learn about it. Uh, I don't remember exactly which week in sem- September, but you can find out the answer on our website, www.memorycardlane.com. And it's going to show you the specific date. So go ahead and check our website out. But with that being said, let's kind of briefly look at Ultima as a series and find out why it find out why find out what it laid the groundwork for now ultima 2 is significant because richard garriott got into a fight with its publisher who was sierra online now we just did a whole episode talking about sierra online kind of you know the the, it's it's successes and then it's decline uh when we talked about the williams roberta williams who created king's quest who you know and her and her husband ken created sierra online So they basically got into a fight over royalties and this fight led to Richard Garriott creating his own company, which is called origin systems, which is the series that are the the publisher that took control of the Ultima series um, for a long time, honestly, until origin was sold to EA. And we actually just talked about EA two weeks ago during a John Madden episode. So look, everything's connected, Rob. Ooh, spooky. The third Ultima was one of the first, if not the first, computer RPG to display animated characters. So we kind of talked about King's Quest, uh, you know, with the Sierra Online episode, and we talked about how King's Quest was unique because every time they published a new iteration of it, it pushed the technology of the time. And Ultima was very much the same way. Every game in a series got bigger, the worlds got bigger, and they got better looking. Ultima 4 
is relatively unique because it's pretty much the first RPG that we know of where the purpose isn't to defeat some ultimate evil. So the Ultimate series is designed in trilogies and coming out of the first trilogy, uh, the story goes that the world is now in a renaissance and not in a age of darkness. And so you get asked to Lord British calls for the, a stranger. It's always a stranger. Doesn't matter if it's the same stranger. It's always a stranger. He basically calls for a stranger because he's concerned that as people are now living this life of success, he's concerned for their spiritual well-being. And so it throws away the concept of fighting an evil and it asks you to go on this journey to lead a virtuous life, become a spiritual leader and an example to the people to lead them to, to you know, the promised land type deal. It's kind of weird, but also it's one of the first times we, we saw someone thinking outside the box when it comes to RPG stories, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, nowadays you think nothing more for that, but Every other single game is go here, fight the fight the big baddie. Go here, he's going to end the world. Fight the big baddie. Go here, fight fight the baddie. And suddenly you have a game that's like there is no baddie, right? You get to learn about about being a virtuous person, and you know you create a religion and get people to follow it, essentially. So, Ultima Five and Six, the bigger, better worlds. They do go back to the traditional story of a world at war. You know, like I said, each each pushed the envelope on technology at the time. You know, for the series, Ultima 7 was the game changer, was the first mouse-based version. It improved on everything from the old ones. It was the first game in the series to use dialogue trees. Uh, it was one of the earliest RPGs to use dialogue trees. It was a very open-ended game. And in hindsight, it's still called one of the best RPGs of all time. So it was the first game to use trees that talked. <laughs> Seems those, a little late in the series. For those of you who don't know what a dialogue tree is, thank you, Rob. So traditionally, games are games were written with the same conversation, right? So this person says this, this person says this, and so on and so forth. You just go back and forth. What dialogue trays are is this person says this and you have options put in front of you on how to respond. And based on how you respond, the dialogue from that point is different. It cascades from the top into branches. So we call it a tree. So basically you could experience the conversations in different ways, depending on how you selected a response. And that's a dialogue tree. Thank you. Makes more sense now. Okay. All right, cool. Ultima 7 was really the pinnacle of Ultima as a series, the core series. There were other spinoffs and other stuff going on, but that was kind of the highlight. It was about during the development of, of 7 that EA had bought out Origin Systems, and then it became an EA franchise, and EA, even to this day, doesn't really have a good reputation on, on doing well to franchises. Hey, Rob. Speaking of EA not doing well to franchises... Uh, did you see that the first season of Battlefield, your Battlefield, was re- is is out now? I actually did. Yes, I've been getting emails about it. Nice. Does it look like anything interesting? I didn't look too much into it because I haven't had much time to play Battlefield. 
Gotcha. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, just it was easy to make that correlation when you have EA shitting on a series, so. Eh, you know, it, it shit happens. You know, you know. So EA buys out Origin, and they start controlling the, the, the development of... Um, they start controlling the development of Ultima Games, and frankly... There are issues with 8 and 9, you know, EA doesn't want this, EA says it has to be out by Christmas, crap like that, and frankly, Ultima 8 and Ultima 9 just, they weren't, they weren't, that's all I'm going to say about that. And although the core series kind of fell through the cracks, in 97, Origin Systems made Ultima Online, which was a very big hit, and it really remains one of the go-to MMO RPGs until the release of WoW in 2004. It was actually the first MMO RPG to gain 100,000 subscribers. So, um, it was a big deal. <laughs> Pretty um, impressive, Dave. Now, with that being said, and speaking of MMO RPG, let's go back and look at the history of Richard Garriott. Say uh, what? Rob, did you know that he is actually the single person that we at- attribute the term MMORPG to? He he's the one who coined it, and it stuck. So um, that that has that 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 to me is his big contribution. Ultima is a really big contribution, but now MMORPGs are such a uh, are such a mainstay that uh, that we can we can attribute that to him too. You know, it it, it happened uh, about ninety seven when he was talking about graphical MUDs. Now, we covered MUDs earlier this year in our RuneScape episode. That was our first episode of the year. And um, he referred to a graphical MUD as a massively multiplayer online RPG, so MMORPG, and people really liked the term, and so MUDs became MMORPGs. The rest is history. That's what we know now, MMOs. Well, that's pretty neat, actually. (laughs) He ended up working on the Ultima series for as as the guy in charge of Origin Systems until roughly the year 2000. Uh, in 2000, EA canceled all of Origin's current projects for them. They were working on, uh, for example, at the time, a Harry Potter online game that was canceled. There was actually one other one that I can't think of at the moment. Those uh, bastards. I know. He left EA and founded Destination Games. Uh, Destination is a play on the word origin, kind of a fuck you to EA. Nice. And Destination Games became the U.S. headquarters of a South Korean MMORPG company called NCSoft, which is still around. They, as Destination Games, they released one game called Richard Garriott's Tabula Rasa, uh, I remember it. A lot of hype that the creator of Ultima was making a new MMORPG. This one was more combat-based, a little bit different. Uh, it was not very successful. And in on November 11, 2008, a letter was published on the Tabula Rasa uh, website in which he announced that he was leaving NCSoft to pursue new interests sparked by his Spice Spice by his space flight experiences, which I'll return to in just a moment. There was one problem with the letter. He claimed that it was forged as a means of forcing him out of a position that he had no intention of leaving. 
So Richard Garriott and then Seesoft duel in courts over what he called involuntary termination over this whole situation. And in the end, Richard Garriott was awarded $28 million and the matter was considered settled. So someone literally forged it or, you know, I mean, it's It's actually a really weird story. So he, he, it's not, he knew he was going to be fired or let go. And he approved an announcement, but he never signed a resignation letter. And so he never actually resigned. And I, I don't, I didn't dig into the, the witch McCall's, but I assume at that point it was, Hey, I understand this is coming, but it's not going to come till I'm ready to go. And I have to sign this letter. And they went ahead and did it anyways. And oh, it, it okay. became, it became a whole, a whole to do thing. So, I mean, after that, Richard Garriott worked for a few other companies, released a few games. They did a Kickstarter for one called like the shrouds of avatar, which was supposed to be the spiritual successor to, to Ultima, it was Kickstarter was successful. They released one episode of what are supposed to be five, and as a game, it was not very notable. And, and they've never released anything other than the first one. And then earlier this year, he resurfaced again when he announced that he was going to be working on a new fantasy MMO that uses NFT technology. And we'll see just how that goes. Because if there's one thing we know, it's that the gaming community loves NFTs. Yeah, uh-huh, 100%. We love them. We, we, get, we get behind them. They're the best thing ever. NFTs are the cat's meow. Meow, Which brings dude. us, I know. So let's go back to space flight. Yeah, what's that all about? In 2008, Richard Garriott flew to the ISS International Space Station as a self-funded space tourist at a reported cost of $30 million. Huh, crazy. It's almost like he had just gotten $28 million. <laughs> right? He, in doing so, he became only the second person to be a second-generation space traveler as the first offspring of an American astronaut to go into space. Speaking of number twos, he was also only the second person to wear the British Union flag into space as he represented both, you know, the United Kingdom and the United States. One really odd fact about that trip, Rob, is that he covertly smuggled a portion of ashes that belonged to Star Trek action star James Doohan on a laminated card. And he hid said ashes under the floor of the Columbus ISS module. Now, this is back in 2008. No one knew about this until it was revealed on Christmas Day of 2020 when James Doohan's son made the fact public on tr- Twitter. And uh, it, it's like actually been confirmed. It's actually been <coughs> confirmed. Yep. He, wow. They laminated ashes in a card. They hid it underneath the floor. Uh, in that time, someone did the math. In that time, Doohan's ashes had orbited Earth more than 70,000 times and traveled more than 1.7 billion miles. Well, shit. On the other hand, I know, right? On the other hand, though, Garriott, Richard, had uh, spent only, I think he spent 10, 11, maybe 12 days in space. I think they landed, uh, they splashed back down on the 12th day, so maybe 11 days in space. While he was up there, he filmed a short sci-fi film called Apogee of Fear, 
which became recognized as the first ever fictional film fully shot in space. Coincidentally, as in first ever first. Uh, I don't know if other ones have, but it is now known as the first ever fiction film shot fully in space. I mean, it's not like they shot Star Wars in space. Oh, wait, they didn't? What do you mean? I know, I was going to say, sorry. I I thought it was shot in a galaxy far, far away. I just broke the magic for someone. I'm sorry. Uh, Sandra Sandra Bullock wasn't really in space either. Sorry to break it to you. Neither was Matthew McConaughey. They were all here on planet Earth. It was all fake. Crazy. Ooh. Next thing you're going to know, the moon landing was fake. Uh, We should save that conversation for another day. Coincidentally, in February of 2021, Richard Garriott also traveled to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. For those of you that don't know, the Mariana Trench is the deepest place on Earth. It's the deepest trench of the ocean on Earth. While he was down there, he filmed another short sci-fi film, which makes him the official record holder of both the highest and lowest altitudes for films he holds the altitude record which is height and he holds the depth record for deep being deep in the earth so i guess i guess in hindsight um he's kind of an interesting dude and yet still not a name that i recognized i know him from his space travel because he became a, a he became more of a guy that was talked about on the space side of the things you know because he hasn't really made a popular video game i mean tabula rasa was his last the last one, the hype was around, and that was 2008, which was a long time ago, and it fell flat on its face. So everything he's done since then, I didn't even know he did a Kickstarter game, and it totally flew underneath my radar that he announced an NFT fantasy MMO, probably because it's an NFT fantasy MMO, and anything with NFT, I just don't care. Um, I understand the concept of NFT. It would be very cool for someone to create a game where you could buy cosmetics that were owned by you and you only that's the concept of an nft um and and the part of it that they're they're theoretically going for but it has to be done correctly and also i don't care about cosmetics normally but i understand what they're trying to do so i want to make badass swords that no one else can own or make them and sell them. And they're one of a kind. But then if someone does that, they're going to make them two of a kind or three of a kind. You, you get what I'm saying? It's a slippery slope. Um, I mean, you can always change just one pixel and it becomes one of a kind. That is absolutely true. And what people would do to exploit the system, you know, but yeah, that's, um, that's Ultima, you know, it, it, it's it's an important step in role playing. It's weird because it's not a traditional role playing game. It is a story that is just so out there. Um but it sparked the beginning of there's actually nine games. There's three trilogies in the main Ultima series. There's one or two spin-off series and then of course you have Ultima Online which if i'm not mistaken is still somewhere out there today i just don't think it ha- i don't know i don't know but um but as a, as a series like like king's quest we talked about king's quest these are games that really laid the foundation i think they laid the foundation of computers like computer gaming as a whole 
because back then adventure and role-playing games were a huge part of of what made up computer games and those genres just aren't popular nowadays and so the games themselves have really fallen out of out of gaming culture you know they're aside from us old dudes who really knows what ultima is or king's quest you know very very true dave um yeah speaking of old dudes i guess uh we talk about a lot of them right uh yeah quite a bit quite a bit when we cover all these old games we talk about a lot of guys who are now you know we're around back in the 70s and 80s when gaming was just started and we do that week in and week out if you want to learn about someone other than richard garriott some games other than ultima we talk about a different old video game every week and you can find out about all of our other topics and episodes on our website at www.memorycardlane.com also on memorycardlane.com there is a calendar to our upcoming episodes if you want to see what we're going to talk about moving forward you can see my ugly face rob's not so ugly face you can find links to our discord our social media links are on there you can find me just about everywhere as david is wrong and Rob, our our listeners, I almost said our viewers. Rob, our listeners can find you find you where? Twitch.tv forward slash F A T B O I R I P Z. We are the fat boys. Yep. So yeah. 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 That's uh that's most of it. That's Ultima. That's the story of Ultima. That's the story of I mean Origin Systems. It it blew bright a bright candle in the gaming industry with Ultima and then EA bought it and, and it's gone now. Like so many other things EA bought and, and smashed EA smash. Um, just like it's our Ultima, game now, just like the Ultima series. Uh, Richard Garriott was quoted as saying like he approached EA. I think it was 2020 about reviving the Ultima series. And they indicated that they had zero interest in doing so they own it nowadays. So, who knows if we're ever going to get it. I mean, let's be honest, role-playing as a genre isn't nearly as popular as it used to be. So that's probably has a lot to do with it. If that genre ever sees a, a, a renaissance, a revival, if you will, this is probably one of the series that they'll, they'll bring back. Um, Cause whenever there's a, a renaissance of a genre, they always go back to its roots, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yep. 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 All right. Well, at the top of each episode, we let you know our objective, and that's to tell you a story. I like to tell you stories about old video games. And while telling you stories, I hope that you learn something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back as its legacy. I teach Rob things too, and I like to know what I teach him. And I learn things in doing so as well. So each week, an acknowledgement that this is a teaching and learning environment we like, to, we like to go round table and talk about our biggest takeaway. Rob, what was the most interesting thing you learned in today's episode? Well, considering I didn't really know about this game, it's it's kind of mind blowing to know that there is a dude who not only traveled to space and Mariana's trench, but also the same guy who's not James Cameron, mind you, who created a video game that is both Harry Potter and Star Wars or Lord of the Rings and Star Wars or any freaking fantasy mm-hmm. genre and Star Wars. And like, 
I think Man. the only reason that it fell underneath my radar is just that it's an older game. But no, like... it's, abso- it's absolutely true. It, it, and the thing of it is, is like, it's it's hard to play nowadays because it's such it's cr- it's crude i mean i'm not gonna pretend it's easy to play it 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 doesn't have much of a story you know back in the 80s when we had to use our imaginations it was amazing but like you should go you should go and look at a playthrough of the game it's really hard to find one for the very first version but they remade it in collections and stuff like that um and it's pretty darn close and it's not called ultima ultima one um the age of darkness it's called like ultima the classic collection or or it's got a different subtitle but it's still ultima one and it literally looks like some of the enemies they're because they're wireframe enemies it literally looks like they could be scratched out by like a a a kindergartner at this point it's like a it's like a representation of what a child would would draw as a skeleton no joke it's like a stick figure skeleton with like a stick figure with a skeleton skull on it if that makes sense um but that was awesome at the time because until then all we had was a words that described a skeleton and now suddenly we could see a skeleton and that was mind-blowing back then but in hindsight it's kind of goofy if that makes sense um it's kind of goofy and and it's it's hard to play and i agree with the one guy who said play it if you want to see the origins of the series i don't know of much of another reason to play it otherwise if i'm being honest with you so yeah 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 i don't know i it's still it's it's kind of crappy that i fell under my radar like when i didn't have as many of the newer games but like making something like that nowadays i'd probably want to try it because it sounds kind of dope not gonna lie it does actually sound kind of cool it's just weird because like it's such a it just it puts every literally like i imagine he had all these posters on his wall of his dorm and he's like yep we're gonna make uh that part that part that part oh we've still got some space on the disc shit there's star wars in the corner there let's figure out how to put star wars in this game guys you know let's do it let's do it come on Let's do it. Tie wings for the win, you know. Uh, tie fighters for the wing, not tie wings. I do know my Star Wars, tie, ladies tie and gentlemen. Tie fighters for the wing. Oh crap! Okay, but you're dead. Mm. All which yep. way? Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but he. What did about yourself, Dave? <laughs> he did. He did say though that they weren't tie fighters. They were from the Wing Commander series, and that was the other series that uh, Origins made eventually that they're known for. They're two series, really the only two series they're known for: are the Wing Commander and. Um, and Ultima, man, the well, Command, Moon Commander games were great. They can't were really say that great. either of them sound familiar to me. Uh, what did I learn? What was the most interesting thing for me? Yeah, Dave, what's the most interesting thing that you learned this week about uh, this game? I, I or never. Garrett? I think my most interesting thing is I never knew that he filmed these short films. I actually want to go and look at them now. I never didn't get time to this week. Um, I'm really interested that he holds like these records where he filmed a short film in space. I know he filmed a documentary up there and he's responsible for helping them. They did this, like the, the view of earth from space project or something like that, that he helped them take all these pictures and videos while he was up there to, to create back at back home. Um, I know he did that, but I, I don't remember him having filmed these little sci-fi films. And I'm really interested by that now. Now I'm really interested by that. I think that's really cool. 
So, yeah, I agree. Actually, I I was kind of curious and want to see them myself. Uh, he's he's an interesting guy. I I know some people aren't a fan. I mean, in all honesty, people don't like space tourists. You know, spending thirty million dollars just to go in space to a lot of people is just a complete waste of money. It is, but if know. I had thirty million dollars, though, I would love to be able to see what the world looks like from space. I just I would love it. Um, but also, I acknowledge the fact that thirty million dollars could help a lot of people out, and that's that's a tough decision. So, but yeah, that's um, that's it. That's it, Rob. That's Ultima. Before I take it out of here, though, uh, is there something you'd like to add to the conversation? Well, Dave, as always, I just want to take one quick moment to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to our show. It means the world to us, and we hope you enjoy. Very true. Well, Rob, next week we're sticking in the early 80s, but... We're going from these little characters uh, in Ultima that were really just really tiny sprites uh, to a fully animated game with moving characters and animated backgrounds. Uh, and you might ask yourself how that's possible with the, with the way technology and computers went at the time. In order to do this, the developers of Dragon's Lair had to tap into the storage capabilities of Laserdisc. Have we talked about Laserdiscs yet? I don't think we have, Dave. Oh, so we get to talk about Laserdisc technology next week. Ooh. Released for arcades in June of 1983, Dragon's Lair was unlike anything that most people have seen at the time. Its graphics were definitely a step up from everything else that was out, but in order to achieve this, Dragon's Lair had to impose some limitations on the gameplay instead of the graphics. And even worse, the technology used by Dragon's Lair was hardly reliable, and it was prone to constant failures. But still, Dragon's Lair wasn't a complete failure, and home versions of the game are still being released today. In fact, they released an Xbox One and Switch version in 2019, and believe it or not, they released an Apple 2GS version of the game earlier this year. We're going to talk about that next week because that's really fascinating because the Apple 2GS hasn't been made in a long, long time. I don't even know what that is. Oh, good. Then we'll talk about what the Apple 2GS is as well. So, ladies and gents, join us again next week as we tune our as we chew. Choo choo. Join us again next week as we choose our own adventure on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do do bop bop. Mm-hmm. Bop, boo, uh.